0: Today, I am excited to share my conversation with Jill Miller, the founder of Yoga Tune-Up and the author of The Role Model. If you've been following me for a while, you may know that I really love getting my information from a variety of sources. However, if I had to choose one person who has been the biggest influence on the way that I teach now, it would be Jill. You will hear about my experience studying with her in the interview And the interview's on the longer side, so I'm going to keep this intro short and dive right into the interview. Before I do, just a quick heads up that if you live within driving distance of Asheville, North Carolina, where I'm based, and are willing to drive here for trainings, please listen past the end of the interview for some info on a training that I'm offering here locally that touches on a lot of the topics covered in this conversation. So having you on the podcast feels like a really cool, full circle to me because I first heard you on a podcast. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Which podcast? I think it was Yoga You. Yoga You Online. Mm -hmm. You've been a big influence. And I don't know if I hadn't met you and taken your trainings, I might not have this podcast right now.
1: That's wonderful. Well, that's how I feel about yoga, because if it weren't for the Raquel Welsh yoga video, I might I be on the other side of this phone, this phone call right now, podcasting with you. It's thanks to media that I was actually introduced to yoga at a very young age. I'm a little nervous Oh to have you on. <laughs> you have the bigger microphone. It's clear by looking at you uh, through, the, through the, uh, the screen here. So I'm intimidated by your microphone. <laughs>
0: But I am really grateful that you made the time to come and talk about hip replacements is the plan.
1: Oh, cool.
0: And I would love to start with a little bit of your story about how you got to the point of having a hip replacement (laughs) and then what it was like for you as a yoga teacher, as a really well-known yoga teacher. And then after we talk about your story, then we can talk a little bit about what yoga teachers would benefit from knowing about hip replacements and helping of avoiding them themselves, helping their students avoid them and working with people who've had them.
1: Great. So I had a hip replacement in November of 2017. So you and I are recording in January of 2019, which means my hip replacement is um, 13, 14 months old now. I have a fourteen-month-old uh, tech in my body, and I've been bionic for, for the, so many months, and uh, so I've had a lot of had a lot of growth in the last year, and have reflected almost every day on what possibly could have precipitated the degeneration in my in my left hip, and I've had a lot of what I thought were solid stories change. And evolve as I've reflected and regressed to earlier and early times in my life. And like literally just a few weeks ago, I was remembering that when I was born, I was born breach. And that is I was born butt first and my mom delivered me butt first. They, they don't always do that anymore. <laughs> like, I was lucky that I had a vaginal. I was delivered vaginally butt first. I mean, my mom remembers it as just the worst experience of her life. They had to give her a massive episiotomy, and they used forceps to pull me out. I was two weeks late. I was a 42-week delivery, and what my mother, what I remembered hearing, I just, I don't remember when this, literally, was just a maybe a couple of weeks ago, that I had this memory of my mom telling me that after I was born, I, w- I could not unfold my hips. I couldn't straighten my legs. That literally the way I was born was the way my body remained for many weeks. So my hips were deeply flexed. And the doctor, one doctor wanted to actually break my legs and just reset them so that I could open my hips, and then another doctor um, just said, just triple diaper, her, just triple diaper her, and that will progressively help her to you know open her hips. So that's what they did. They triple diapered me, and at the time, that's cloth diapers, right? Because everybody had cloth diapers back then. That's hopefully aging me appropriately. You know, the child of the '70s, and you know, eventually I straightened my. I was able to extend my hips just like every other baby. But it was just sort of a weird thing. I was folded in half. And so when I think about that, like I think about that and I wonder, I wonder if there was a birth injury with the forceps um, and I was protecting myself because I know what the role of the psoas is in the human body right now as a an educated anatomy geek and an educator of, of people in movement um, that that reflex that we have, that primitive reflex to protect the gut and the viscera is an activation of the psoas. And so I'm just wondering if this was some, you know, birth trauma from the forceps delivery that my body held onto. And it ended up over, you know, over decades and decades. Um influencing the joint capsule or the bone, because I had a cam deformation, a very slight cam deformation. So a cam deformation is that the the head of the femur is not perfectly round. So the head of my right femur is perfectly round. The head of my left femur, not perfectly round. I have it right here <laughs> in a jar right here. And you can't really tell because it's still in the jar. I haven't taken it out. So my like my new, not theory, but my new like piece of information that I wasn't really Recalling when uh, on the initial sort of blogs that I wrote and podcasts that I did, and I'll you know, I'll tell you the other, I think, causal factors of the degeneration for sure. But this could easily have been some type of birth trauma that you know, over time added up. Um, okay, so then what were the other things that? I think, were a likely cause of the degeneration in that hip. Uh, So I have always been extremely mobile, hyper, not hyper, oh yeah, hypermobile. Like I made myself hypermobile though. So I remember when I first started doing gymnastics, which like nothing lasted long when I was a kid, I was just into reading. So if you went into gymnastics class, wouldn't last too long, maybe, you know, a few months or maybe a year, but I, you know, I was, I was really kind of a chubby kid. And I didn't really like sports. And, um, but when I discovered uh, yoga through the Raquel Wells Yoga video around age 11 or 12, and at the same time that Jane found a workout, it was uh, tied up along with an eating disorder. So I started to starve myself and became anorexic while I was um, learning the, the, these movement practices from, from media, which changed my life. Um, but I quickly gained a lot of flexibility from doing these videos. So I think naturally I have a tissue disposition that is uh, extremely on the Gumby scale of things. And I've got, you know, I'm part Russian, part Romanian. And when I think of the Romanian gymnasts and like the legacy, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's kind of like my body type. If only I would have done more strength training to really, <laughs> really have that body type. I just, I really like stretching a lot. So I did a lot of yoga from basically age twelve until eight, even now. I mean, I'm I'm 47. I still do I still do things, and I was also a dancer, and so flexibility and mobility were a really big asset to have in both of those um, uh, art, art traditions of art, right? So. Part of my practice though, my personal practice was doing the straddle splits and also the front to back splits. So Samakonasana and Hanumanasana. And then when I was into Ashtanga and, well, I mean, I was into Ashtanga, Iyengar, but I remember when I was into first series and second series, there's lots of legs behind the head. There's lots of lotus, there's lots of unfolding your lotus and jumping back out of lotus. There are a lot of extreme hip positions that done every day for long periods of time, and I practiced for two two and a half hours a day, every day with very few days off. And I think the repetition uh, definitely overstretched ligaments, which degraded. That for sure that left joint capsule, especially if there was some type of deformation already going on in the head of the femur, and ultimately. I ended up getting an MRI and we can talk about, I mean, I'm, I'm just talking here not even asking a question. So um, when we get to that part of the story, you know, I can tell you why I ended up walking into um, to get the MRI. But I think those are the things that, that caused too much practice, too much practice. So when I was in the depth of, I would say, you know, the uh, overdoing it, I was in a really bad frame of mind mentally. And I was uh, you know, using my practice to help me with the misery that was that was my life. And this is all, by the way, the, the majority of that heavy practice was through my 20s. And by the time I was in my early 30s, um, I pretty much stopped cold turkey and started developing yoga tuna <laughs> as a way to um, rebalance my body and get strength back, really focus in on proper articulation of my joints. If I weren't a practitioner like I was, I think that I'd probably have a hip replacement in my late 50s instead of my mid 40s. Yeah. I think at some point the hip that I got from either genetics or from the possibly the forceps delivery, let's well, possibly, it's my new theory, um, was at some point in this in this life cycle was not going to last, but I I think I hastened its degradation with the amount of flexibility practice I did. And, you know, when, when some of the some of the kickback, because I was very, I've been very open about the whole process of the hip replacement journey. You know, a lot of people criticized me. They're like, well, you weren't really doing yoga if you were practicing asana for two and a half hours a day. Well, I was also meditating for an hour a day. And I, I had a lot of the peripheral practices that were, a part of my greater practice. I mean, I was trying to live like a yogi, like doing asana, pranayama, meditation, and I was all in, man. Chanting, I was all in.
0: You were doing what you knew to do. You were doing what your teachers told you to do, mm-hmm. and what was working for you at the time, too.
1: Yeah, but I loved it more than I loved my my life. Like the practice gave me gave me joy, whereas my life did not.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, I think many of us find yoga that way. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what was it like all those years later, you had been doing more sustainable practices for a really long time already. What led you to realize that that wasn't enough and that you needed some surgical intervention?
1: Well, I knew enough about anatomy, and I knew enough about um, recurrent signals to recognize that I had I had probably some trauma in that left hip. So, what was the canary in the coal mine was I had a uh, there's a muscle called the tensor fascia lata, which is a a small lateral anterior muscle of the of the thigh, and it's one of your synergists in hip flexion, and it also inserts. Into the IT band. And I would have infrequent spasms in that muscle. And I could always um, correct my way out of it. I could do exercises that would um, turn off the muscle, but it would flare up for a few days at a time and then go away for many, many weeks or months. And then it would show up again. And the fact that it would recur and that the frequency of its recurrence of spasm were you know sort of getting or closer and closer between I, I thought that i might have torn out have a little small tear in my labrum and that that were, that muscle was um was the was the the smoke or the the red flag for me and this all happened at the same time that i was having children and i did not want to have any imaging on my body until I had had as many children and nursed them as long as I possibly could because I didn't want any, anything to make me mistrust my body because I had a lot of trust in my body. And um, so I think when Asher was, yeah, just about a year old, I was still nursing him, but I, I decided to go and have the MRI because I started having some knee pain. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I am not gonna let the problem with my hip create a secondary problem. And so that's why I went because I started having some knee pain that I knew was directly being caused by whatever was going on in the hip. As Soon as I had the MRI and um, got the results, I knew that, that was uh, there was going to be no other option except a total hip replacement. I was pretty shocked because I thought it would just be a labral tear. But when I saw that there was, you know, what labrum? There was, it was nothing, there was no cartilage there. Um, I had worn down the bone completely. There was uh, condromalacia. There were bone bruises. There was a perfect sphere. I mean, you can see it in the bone I have on my desk—a perfect sphere uh, carved out of the head of the femur and the acetabulum. I was bone on bone. Yeah, there would there would have been no other conservative thing. I've had many people on social media say, "Well, why don't you just do um, gelatin injections or this or that?" Yeah, just drink gelatin. Lots of people told me to drink gelatin. I was like this is bone on bone at this point. There, there, there are no further, believe me, I, I, would, I would do every conservative measure under the sun. This was the conservative measure. This is what I was left with. And it was a great choice. And when I met my surgeon, um, his first three words to me, because <laughs> he had just looked at my images when he walked in were, so when do you want to schedule? And uh, yeah, that was a pretty solid pretty solid uh, story there. And so I had to make the decision about when I wanted to schedule and I had some pretty big obligations that I needed to satisfy, some contracts I needed to satisfy. And so I I gave it two and a half months after I met with him. And then I did it the day after Halloween so I could go trick-or-treating with my kids. And then on November 1st, I had my new hip put in.
0: And are you willing to share a little bit about what that was like?
1: terrifying though because i had two children and so i you know part of my fears in general are of dying and so whenever there's surgery involved um that's where my head goes i mean i'm optimistic that i'm gonna heal but what if i die (laughs) so that was pretty scary for me yeah that's that uh, grim reaper when you're on a gurney, there I don't know who can't... I mean, maybe there's some people who don't have that, that experience, but I certainly, I certainly do. My dad's a doctor. I've heard enough stories my whole life of super healthy people going into surgery and never coming back. So I, mean, you know, I had some of those fears. And of course, being a mother of two small children, one who was still breastfeeding yeah, there's just there's that that sacrifice of uh, what if I don't come back? So and the choice I made about my surgery was a particular surgery called the direct superior approach. Now, uh, there's only going to be a small handful of of humans who even know of, of surgeons who even know what I'm talking about. So this is a surgery that was innovated by Dr. Jason Snibby. And he's out here in Los Angeles. He's trained, I think, maybe just two or three other surgeons to do this particular approach. And it's a very small scar as far as hip surgeries go. It's a, about three and a half to four inch scar. And it is uh, a process where they they cut something. They, they have to cut the distal tendon of the piriformis. And they don't cut you know the glutes or make a huge slice in the side of your thigh and the IT band like they used to do and the technology now is or this particular prosthesis I have is made by a company called Stryker so it's a dual mobility uh, prosthesis which the benefits of which are that there are no movement contraindications ever i mean literally they want you moving in every range of motion as long as there's no pain, you mean immediately. And the post-surgical recommendation was to walk five times a day and to do the PT, to do as much PT as possible. I walked out of the surgical center six hours after I went in. Yeah, I used a, uh, a walker. And by the time I got home, I didn't use the walker again. I used the cane when I got out of car or crutches when I got out of the car. And I went home and I nursed my son. Wow. Yeah. I didn't have to spend the night, and, which my father was like, he was completely blown away and sort of disgusted because he's a doctor and he's never heard of this surgery. <laughs> he's like, you need to spend two nights in the hospital after that surgery. And I said, I'm home right now. And the physical therapist is coming
0: later today. So was that a function of the approach? This
1: surgical approach is an outpatient approach. You can spend the night. They give you that option. Your insurance actually will cover you to spend the night. But I wanted to be with my family. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to nurse my son. (laughs) That's all I wanted to do. And uh, and I did. Uh, You know, In three years, maybe I'll say, I should have taken the night alone. But I didn't want to. I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to be in my house. And I wanted to be with my baby. So that's what I did.
0: And are there... A lot of different approaches or is there just one other standard or what do you do you know
1: yeah so there's what's called the posterior approach where they do have to cut through your your glutes and they do a little cut into the it band um, this they just sort of shift it. they shift through the septa and dive their way down to the greater trochanter And there's a robot that's assisting this and they're doing measurements the whole time. So they know how to, oh, it just sounds so horrible, but to hammer the, whatever the the metal post into your, uh, into the middle of your femur. Basically when you, when you come out of the surgery, my pelvis was level for the first time in my life. I didn't realize that the clicking in my left ankle had constant clicking in my left ankle. um, It's gone away. Like, as soon as I as soon as I started walking, that was one of the first things I noticed is that my foot mechanic changed, because he had righted my discrepancy in my pelvis. The discrepancy because of so much degeneration, I had a lower side on my left hip. Right, I had a, you know a, a, apparently shorter left leg, which I never had. It's just that the pelvis um, didn't have enough fluid to sit on it within the joint capsule. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So this approach, they it's minimal cutting. It's very, very quick healing. And there's a, another approach called the anterior approach where they don't cut any muscle, but they do cut the front of the, the front of the joint capsules. They cut the anterior capsule, which, if you know, anatomy, is one of the attachment sites for the rectus femoris. And m- all of my irritation was on the front of my hip. It was uh, I had some rec fem tendinosis, and then I had that TF, that tensor lata irritation so I didn't want to have an anterior approach because that's where my irritation was so I couldn't imagine having a scar on a zone that already that already had been an irritant for me you know an infrequent irritant so that's why I I liked this approach and also the people that I talked to that had it the athletes that I talked to that had had it were just like so pleased with their with their recovery so that's why I did it. So it is what it is, and I, I, I you know definitely lack strength in my left hip
0: as a result, but you know every day I get stronger. What can a yoga teacher do within our sp- scope of practice to be helpful to our students?
1: Uh, I, th- I think the the thing within our scope of practice is that we need to listen to our students um, the you know, frequency of recurring pain. so, You have acute pain. You have subacute pain. You have chronic pain. So acute pain is just a sudden onset. Happens from a trauma. Subacute pain is a couple weeks later. There's still pain. Chronic pain is beyond that six-week mark. Now, I'm sure anybody can relate to having lingering pain for six weeks. You know, say you you. um, (laughs) I mean, I just kicked my 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 mattress frame yesterday or two days. Yeah, yesterday when I was playing with my kids and. My tibia right, went right into the mattress frame. Like, this is, the, like I, this is one of my most feared pains. I can't stand it because it's a bone bruise. Like, I totally have a bone bruise. That bone bruise is like a big bubble right in the front of your tibia. That's going to be there for about six weeks. So that's not something where I need to go to a doctor. You know, it's going to be sensitive to the touch. It's going to be really annoying. Um... I'm in the acute pain phase right now. I was rolling this morning. I forgot about it. And of course, my yoga tuna balls rolled right on. I was like, wow, <laughs> it was so horrible. So when somebody comes to us week after week and says, you know, my wrist hurts, you know, and, and you, you do everything you know to potentially help them with their wrist. And they come back next week, you know, my wrist hurts. Then you ask them, well, um, how do you use your computer at your thing? Or how do you, you know, how do you, uh, what are the things that you do? Oh, I'm a hairdresser okay, you're a hairdresser. So I need to, you're doing the same repetitive motion day in and day out. So then you think around some exercises that might be beneficial to somebody who's using their forearm and their wrist and their shoulder and their neck in this particular way, day in and day out. And you give them some strengthening and mobilization exercises. Maybe if you teach yoga tune-up a role model, you teach them some rolling stuff. And then they come back in uh, a week later and it's still the same pain nothing's changed then that's when you might want to say have you ever had somebody take a look at that before and then refer them up the chain and the up the chain is depending on the rules of your state it could be to a physical therapist or it could be to an orthopedist now the orthopedist might look and they see nothing they see nothing and then and then, then they get referred to physical therapy and hopefully the physical therapist can you know create um, a protocol for them. Hopefully, the orthopedist sees nothing, or the neurologist sees nothing, and then ultimately, it's going to be about you know improving whatever lifestyle changes, and then uh, movement, uh, movement exercises or stretches or strengthening things that will help with that person's pain. But it's important for all of us as teachers to to know when we've exhausted we've exhausted our options. Is to refer to our neighboring practitioners and those with big, bigger degrees, and that can manage a little bit more risk in, you know, in their protocols. And one of the reasons why I developed the role model work specifically is that the, the therapy balls, and you know, I mean, you know the work. Maybe the audience doesn't, but the role model is a, a family of small, small, medium, and large, and extra large, grippy, pliable soft rubber tools and the tools are touch tools. So they're stress transfer mediums, they're massage tools. So they touch your body and you use your body weight and movement to help them navigate around the textures of your tissues. One of the things that happens when you do that is you really get familiar with uh, different sensations that are innate within your tissue and you're able to distinguish different degrees of, um, pressure tolerable pressure wincy sensations relief and release like sensations downright pain and lots of different textural experiences in your body so you're able to differentiate you know if you dig deeper into the education differentiate different types of fascia you're able to understand what the texture of, of certain ligaments feel like versus what uh, certain different types of Tendons feel like different muscle groups and their relationships to one another. So you get really familiar with your internal landscape. That's very, very powerful because then when you do get hurt, when you do you know, kick your futon and get a little hematoma going on that's, that's, that's beyond the skin, that's the skin of the bone, you feel a lot more confident in your relationship to that owie right? You don't feel so victimized by your aches and pains. You feel like, oh, I understand that this is a a, a muscle tear or this is a fascial, uh, a tendon strain, or this is just a a bruise in my fatty layer. So you're able to really differentiate your own understanding of your body's pains, your body's sensations. So that's very, very powerful. When you uh, with great repetition, you know, you pr- do some type of practice, some type of self touch practice. Then, when you're doing a your movement practice, the sensations you experience within a movement practice, they also become less threatening to you. I mean, I, th- I feel like this is the, is the process of learning of that svadaya of learning your own body, right? Learning its felt
0: experience. Is that some in some way how you knew? I mean, because it sounded like in your story that you were telling me earlier that you were kind of flabbergasted by it, that you were oh, like, well, I know was. my body so well.
1: Well, because I also had the assumption that if you were bone on bone and totally degenerated, Madeau, that you would be in agony. Osteoarthritis, end stage osteoarthritis that merits a total bone replacement. That should be a person who can't walk, who's hobbling around. And that wasn't my story, Middo. I was moving beautifully. I was out of pain 97% of the time. I would have this infrequent flare-up in my TFL. So to me, that wasn't a person who was living in a bone-on-bone, bone spurs all around, no cartilage. I'm showing her my bone again. So that's why I was flabbergasted because I was like, how could I have missed this? How could I, this person who thinks they're so in touch with their body, this person who's so embodied, how could I admit this? It's because the practices that I teach are, um, I don't want to say pain avoiding, but they're pain mitigating so successfully that I didn't know that I was in that kind of pain.
0: And the human body is far more complex. I mean, that's, that's what's so interesting about it is that we will never fully understand it
1: no we won't <laughs> we won't and you know when i've been I, what i've loved about this whole this whole episode is that you know i decided that i needed to go public and i needed to share this i wanted to make sure that my my students and the teachers that teach my work knew that it wasn't yoga tune up that destroyed my hip yoga tune up is what preserved me what what gave me another 12 years on a on a bone that i didn't know was be, you know, slowly, you know, had lost its way. So I changed my practice. When I started developing yoga tune I just stopped doing the type of poses that I had been doing up to that point. Um, so as I shared this, all these teachers came out of the closet. All of these people started reaching out to me and asking for insights and advice uh, about their own degraded hip now it's mostly hip people that that reach out to me I mean I get you know people asking me about their shoulder or their neck or their elbow or their spine or their ankle but mostly it's hip people because they can relate to the hip thing and you know these are people who are like oh you know well I've been taking a lot of painkillers and I'm at the point now where I need to take to have hip replacement well, I, you know I wasn't on painkillers like even another friend of mine, uh, who's in the um, strength and conditioning space, she, one of her, and she was about to have her second hip replacement. And she texted me because I'd been, I was like, asking her lots of questions about her process, and she said, "Oh, just make sure to take all the painkillers right up to the surgery. Don't worry about it because you've only got a few weeks left." And I didn't even have a prescription for painkillers because I wasn't in that kind of pain that she was living with. So it it's just different people process pain differently. And I certainly had, um, my body was processing pain in ways that were pretty bizarre. I mean, I think I, I've talked about this on some other podcasts, but for me, the how the pain processing was happening was in what I would call mood disorders, or I could just call it, I'm a mom of toddlers. And I it was very, very reactive and extremely emotional, more so than ever before. But I don't know whether that's because I was still postpartum or whether it was, you know, just my hip or maybe I'm just, you know, a furious a furious female. There's a lot of things that would have made me mad at that period of time in my life um, on, on certain levels. And then the uh, other weird thing was that I developed this very strange autoimmune uh, reaction that I actually think it's connected to the hip. I, I don't have anybody, any scientist who yet has completely been able to explain this to me, but I got this thing called cold urticaria, which is a hypersensitivity to cold temperature. So, and this started uh, right before I had my first child. And I mean, I had the TFL thing going on and off for about seven years prior to surgery. So, I mean, I, I think that, Part of the the biopsychosocial encompassing theory of pain, you know, pain isn't just going to your somato somatosensory cortex; it's also going to other places within your brain. And so, I think that my sensitivity to temperature, to cold, which I never had had before, might have been some other way of my body um, processing pain in a in a unique and strange way. So, the way that shows up is if I'm if cold air touches my skin. Um, I all blow up in histamine reactions. So if I'm sitting underneath an air conditioning vent, um, I mean my nose will blow up. It's bizarre. If I'm holding on to a smoothie for too long, my fingers will blow up. Or even drinking a smoothie or ice cream, which I love, um, my tongue will blow up. I'll start to get inflammation in my esophagus. It's pretty. It's a bizarre thing. Cold water will set me off.
0: So did that and your mood improve after your hip replacement?
1: The colder urticaria definitely has not changed, although I am less reactive to my re- its reactivity. So when <laughs> when I get the cold exposure, I just deal with it differently. I mean, it's a massive irritant. I mean, imagine being plunged into stinging nettles every time you're exposed to cold. It's, a, it's extremely irritating.
0: Okay. Now, I seem to remember you did some Wim Hof stuff.
1: Um, well, I've experimented with lots of different breathing techniques. So yes, if I do some th- a type of panting breath, uh, I can upregulate my cortisol, You know, get sort of an adrenaline rush, and that will tamp down that. But I don't want to be running around uh, flaring my sympathetics like that just to get rid of the irritant. Uh, what works best is repeated exposure. So the more I expose myself to the cold and just endure it, then I have a lesser and lesser um,
0: disturbed reaction to the irritant. I was just wondering what had inspired you to pursue that if you had that particular <laughs> affliction. So now it makes oh, sense. no,
1: no, no, no. I don't do the the cold plunge. You know, I used to do, no, no, no not that part, just the breathing stuff. <laughs> I don't want to go into one. Are you kidding me? Do you know how irritating? You just think of your genitals getting frozen with this as a. Well, this
0: is why I was confused. <laughs> this is why I was pursuing this line of questioning. Just
1: I, I was a, I was a dabbler. I, I was just curious what what Wim, what Wim was doing because I'm also teaching breath work. but um, I'm not, I'm not uh, doing that type of cold exposure, and um, I don't see myself doing that. Anytime soon. Mm-mm.
0: But you do give yourself some regular cold exposure to help limit the reactivity?
1: Uh, no. I went to New York a few weeks ago. I did a a moment on the Today Show talking about diastasis recti. It was freezing in New York City. And just waiting outside the airport, uh, I had my first, you know, Reaction, right? My face blew up, my hands blew up. And then uh, when I went out into the cold an hour and a half later, I had less of a reaction. And then when I went out into the cold an hour and a half later, I had less of a reaction. So it was clear to me that once I'd had the worst blowout, that each subsequent blowout would be less and less. And so that was the first time I had that experience of, um, you know, repeated exposure having a minimizing reactivity result. Yes. So now I'm less afraid of going out. I, I mean, and that's just that was really recent. So now I'm less afraid of going out on the early morning walks with the dog. It's like, okay, that's fine. If I get if I have my blowout, I know that the next blowout will be less.
0: As the final piece of this, I would love to hear your advice for yoga teachers for working with people who've had hip replacements. And I understand that it's gonna be different for different people. Um, but maybe, what sort of questions should we be asking?
1: There, you know, the, the the technology that I have in my in my hip is in the last five years. So many people in the last five years who've had hip surgeries have no movement precautions post surgery, but those who had them five years, one month before, still have limitations. Anybody who has had a surgery needs to know their precautions and. If you have a student who comes in and said, oh, you know, I have, first of all, hopefully they disclose. If they don't disclose, it's really not on you. And you cannot possibly, in a group class that's at a gym that's churning and burning people in and out, you cannot possibly have the wherewithal to do an intake. So hopefully the uh, people are notifying you that they have have something going on. Or if you go over to adjust somebody and they say, hey, hey, I, I can't do this. I have a hip replacement. And you're like, ah, oh, thanks for letting me know. Because not everybody's just going to come up to you at the beginning, of, you know, at the beginning of class and, and let you know that. Um, people who had sort of old hardware, their limitation is flexion and adduction. You can uh, pop the device out of its socket. And that would be a really miserable experience. And I've heard of this happening many times. Poses that we teach that our flexion and adduction, our twisted triangle, is a big culprit. And um, many of the twists, many of the seated spinal twists that pull one leg across the midline, those would be considered flexion and, and adduction. So those are problematic. Um, for some people, deep extension could also pop the, the femoral head out as well. And so, but if somebody comes in and they don't know their precautions, I I would probably be conservative and I would teach them as if they had an old school, old school hardware. So even if someone said, oh, I just had, I had hip surgery two years ago and everything's fine. I said, do you know your movement precautions? Uh, What did your surgeon tell you? Or what did your physical therapist tell you when they released you? If that person doesn't know, I would literally treat them as if they had old hardware because some there might be clinics and there are clinics that are still doing, using old hardware because that's what the surgeons who work at those clinics are um, are still are still using. Not everybody's using this this new stuff um, because it's, it's very expensive to get the training, and um, it just depends on which hospitals your insurance is working with, and you know what privilege you have with your insurance, and and that that limits you know limits our knowledge. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of people who are not you know like um, I. Of course, remember everything any doctor has ever said to me, because that's just the kind of person I am, and I'm a little, a little bit obsessed obsessive that way. My dad's a doctor, so I, li- you know, I just I've learned to listen. They're they don't know, they just it's just not something that that might be on their radar as a as a all day, every day thing. So first of all, find out what those hip precautions are. You're going to send them packing because ultimately. You want them to be able to get as much out of your class as possible. So just say, hey, can you go look in your record? Just go look in your medical records. And if you don't know how to look for it, bring it in. And by the way, if you're a teacher and you don't know how to, you know, look at a discharge and, you know, what it says for movement precautions, then have that person call their surgical office or, you know, you've got to find out. That's what I would say it's really, it's on, I think it's on the individual, it's on the, the person to know their own precautions. It's really not fair to put that on a yoga teacher because it's not like that's part of our training. The other thing that I would say is that while one hip has been replaced, another hip has been working over time for that person's body for decades likely. And so the compensation patterns are that the other side of the body and specifically the stuff below the pelvis Um, there's going to be a lot, uh, many different uh, bizarre compensations from foot to hip on that opposite side of the body. And the knee often pays a a dear price. So those would be things to really pay attention to is making sure that that student um, becomes more aware of their own patterning and, and so that can be very interesting, especially if you're a teacher of asana. Asana, often you do one side and then you do another side um, to really try to help that person improve sense through the different myofascial zones, myofascial tissues, um, seeing if they can exert pressure into different places within their foot or take pressure off of certain places in their foot to get different tissues to fire up the, the myofascial trains and chains. So that's very interesting. And then often people who've had hip replacements because of those compensation patterns, when you go higher up in the body, when you go through the lumbar and the thorax, they will have some type of scoliosis from their body having rotated away from the degenerating hip. So um, it's really interesting to work with them through their core. I, I saw patterns in my rib cage that I hadn't seen before until my pelvis was leveled. And once my pelvis was level. Um, I started seeing rotations in my, my ribs that I hadn't seen before. Um, the level pelvis gave me the gift of seeing of seeing <laughs> of seeing my spine for the first time the way it had decided to bend. And um, so that's just been a really interesting journey is working through my, my rib cage and my lungs and my diaphragm and sort of remodeling. I, I call my whole journey the role remodel because there's been a lot of remodeling of soft and hard tissues. In this, uh, in this, in this journey. So, that's going to go all the way up the chain. It's going to go through the neck and head out through the shoulders and arms. So, the, really, the whole body is replaced mm. when you get a when you get a hip replacement. It is a interior redecorating, and this will take years and years. Part that's part of what's so exciting for me as a a, a consumer of movement is that I get to rediscover new movement patterns and look at the decades of compensations that have been knit into, uh, yeah, into the way I move and break them, break them down and learn new things and try to create as many new inputs as possible so that my my body ultimately adapts and grows from, from this whole experience.
0: It sounds like you also have had a tremendous amount of mental and emotional growth through the process.
1: Oh my gosh. I'll tell you what. This is the fun part. The movement stuff has been the fun part. Learning new models of movement, doing so much with my physical therapist, Leffel McCurdy, who is literally a a white witch and a a sorcerer. And I just got so lucky in finding this woman as part of my really the, the my I would call her my lead medical team. She's been so amazing and become a really good friend. But the the mental and emotional has been the hardest. Like the physical part has been the easiest. Tissue is the tissue is adaptable. <laughs> you can train it. You can nourish it. You can uh, strengthen it. You can weaken it. The hardest part has been that the I think the surgery itself uh, exposed a lot of other other emotional wounds. And so I'm I'm in deep therapy now, dealing with some pretty major PTSD that that cropped up last summer just out of nowhere. And that's been that's been definitely the hardest part of this whole journey, is um, the the surgery
0: opened up um, a different wound, yeah. And you know we all have those wounds somewhere, and as hard as as hard as it can be to face them, it is a gift also. Especially if you're willing to face them. So yeah, so yeah,
1: it's not, it doesn't feel so much like a gift right now. No. I'm in the I'm in the ick. I'm in the ick part of it. But I know, as eventually, I'll be like, I'll be. Oh my god. I'll be smiling for real, and not not forcing a smile. Oh my know, gosh. Uncomfortable it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I can relate. Not that I've had a hip replacement, but just every time that there's emotional growth available, it's always like, (laughs) really? (laughs) Can I just maybe stay stuck? (laughs) So I'm really grateful that you are so open about it and that you're sharing it because it does give strength to everyone else because we all have to share that human experience. Yeah. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that, and asking that part of the question. Because that's that's been that's been where the, the real growth has been for sure. Or where the real potential for emotional growth is. is the physical growth. That's I'm a, I'm gonna regrow tissue, I'm gonna regrow nails, I'm gonna regrow hair, I'm gonna regrow a hip. I wish. You know, like I was at the fascia Congress in uh, Berlin just a few just a few months ago in November and they're up there talking about ways they can regrow bone. And I'm just sitting in my seat, like itching my scar going, you know, <laughs> where were you a year ago? Like in terms of preventing hip replacements. Yeah. You know, I think that if you, you're not going to know that you have two perfectly spherical femurs. Mm. You, you're you not going to know that unless you're, Everybody gets x-rayed at age, whatever, 25. And you can see all your bones and everything in order. You're just not going to know. And so the biggest causal factor that I can pinpoint from my practice was that I did too much stretching with too much frequency without enough proper loading of the muscles, so I spent a lot of time hanging out in joint capsules, overstretching tissues that could not endure, and ultimately they just gave up, and they lost their elasticity. And I wasn't getting feedback from them, so I never got feedback that anything was hurting. I had just overstretched them to the point that they just went silent. So, um, for me, the deep stretching and the long held stretching quelled my nervous system. It was myself. And it was my salvation. It's what gave me peace. I couldn't, I can't, you know, rewrite history and change that. Um, but I certainly wish that that something, that some part of me had gravitated towards other modalities of strengthening and stabilizing my structure when I was younger, um, instead of going for these long holds and these very deep holds that were not what we would call on the functional spectrum. This is something that I would caution yoga teachers um, to make sure that you're resourcing your tissues with every you know every type and variety of movement that that nourishes a human body. So don't overlook strength, Don't overlook um, quick movements, Don't overlook um, bouncing movements. You know these things are not frequently seen in the in the yoga classroom and you know as much as isometrics are wonderful you also want to make sure you're doing concentric and eccentric activities as
0: well that's great advice Jill because i think many of us who gravitate towards yoga we do find great joy in the deep stretching and the the strengthening work is not as pleasant to be honest it's just not as pleasant when i found you was similar to the time i started doing crossfit and strength training and applying different movement nutrients to my body. And it's, I didn't do it because it felt good. <laughs> I didn't do it because I liked it. I did it because I had a sense that my body was going to fall apart if I didn't do it. So good. Yeah. But I was also had the privilege of having influences, you know, this, at the time that you were doing your intense deep stretching practices, it was a different time. There was less access to information, frankly. Oh, for sure. There was no internet. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there was, but it wasn't really. like <laughs>
1: Yeah. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There were no, yeah.
0: So what I teach in my classes, you know, and I try to say this really specifically is don't be too hung up on how it feels while you're doing the movement. Pay attention to how it feels when you're done. And not that, not that that's like the be all end all measurement, but when I do strength training, I don't, I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy the doing it, but it feels really good on my body afterwards. I can tell that my body is getting stronger and becoming more capable. And, but it, but it has taken me not just going for my first instincts, not just going for what feels good, but gathering information and then doing experimentations. What does work for this body? Yeah. I think I'll finish by just thanking you for being part of that journey and for the great work that you do educating people. Oh, thank you. My audience is yoga teachers, so maybe you want to talk about the level one. I'll talk about the level one, because I did it. <laughs> sure,
1: yeah, the, which we are now actually calling just the Yoga Tune-Up Certification Program. Okay. We finally just took away the words level one. Okay. And yoga Tune-Up Certification, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's a how many-day certification? Seven. It's a seven-day program, and it's quite intense. I did not know what I was signing up for when I signed up for it. I signed up for it because I'd heard you on the podcast, I looked you up, and I noticed that you were teaching what at that time was the level one, just 10 minutes away from where one of my dear friends lives. And I was like, oh, well, then I don't have to worry about paying for lodging, so I think I could afford this. And it turned out that she was actually out of town, so I had her place to myself, which thank God, <laughs> because I don't think, I don't know how I would have survived it otherwise. Don't, don't be intimidated. It's, it's just, you, you need to have a, there's homework and it's intense and you learn a lot and you will, you know, be asked to question what you know about yoga and about the human body. So it was a, it was a really eye opening experience for me. And if you want to just kind of refine what I just said.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, It's a process-based program that I think fundamentally makes every educator who comes in the door look at their own biases about movement. And we do use yoga as an overall frame, but you don't learn a lot of asana in it. In fact, what we do is we spend a lot of time um, deconstructing or um, disassembling poses so that we break down fundamental human kinesiology. So you learn a lot about joint articulations. You learn about different types of muscle dynamics, the process of contractions and different types of stretches, different types of stretch rather. And there's a little bit of the yoga tune-up therapy balls used just to help you with mapping and learning anatomy, embodied anatomy. It's also a leadership course. So I think you really... Um, start to look at your habits of speaking and the way you communicate about movement to groups and focus in on contextualizing to the humans that are in the room rather than teaching from a script. It really strips people down of a lot of the, the models that they've come in with right from different schools of yoga and really helps them to see human bodies as human bodies that are uh, trying to sort of upload fanciful activities upon them and what might be best practices that could easily translate from modality to modality. So when you leave that training, while it's a yoga tune-up training, you actually can just instruct movement better. So whether you're a Pilates teacher, an athletic coach, a yoga teacher, um, or even a physical therapist, you have a much better way of explaining movement to students and helping them to find their way through their bodies. It's Difficult to explain it fully, isn't it,
0: Maddo? I thought that was brilliant, actually. And I concur. I agree. I think that it really revolutionized my ability to explain and understand human movement.
1: Yeah. Um, and what we've seen from people who go through our program is that it's extremely empowering. And I think it's also a very good way for teachers to see more of what they're really about. And and I see our teachers as extremely entrepreneurial. You're one a great example. You've got this entire universe now that you've created, and it just tickles me to see the professional acumen of the people that go through our program, whether they continue to teach Yoga Tune Up or to use many of the principles that they learned as they develop their own business and their education platforms. So I think it's a it's a great place to sort of level up your where you're at, and especially if you've become complacent in you know, if we're talking to yoga teachers, if you become complacent and you're tired of teaching the same type of classes that you teach all the time, this is a training that will also arm you with dozens of workshop ideas that can help you generate a really nice side income in addition to your regular classes. So I think you become more adept at teaching um, personalized yoga in privates and also specialized yoga in in workshop type environments. So the, the training, it's only seven days, but it, it really gives you all those tools. And then if you become a teacher of yoga tune-up, uh, you get additional support from the teaching team. And then there's also seven other modules that go into other, other narrow niches that are very important for educators of all stripes, not just yoga teachers.
0: What I loved about it was that it gave me the tools to continue educating myself afterwards. Totally. Because there's only so much that you can stuff in in seven days, really. But it changed the way that I taught myself. And I just continued to use those foundations to keep layering in my education and be self-educated. So, Totally.
1: Yeah, and we we have trainings all over the world so we have a team of trainers that lead the courses um, my next course uh, the level one or the yoga training <laughs> is in la february 7th through 14th but i know ariel kylie she's teaching one at the kripalu institute in march and that's going to sell out so it's always wonderful to be there at the institute um and then we have trainings happening uh, i think in the midwest and west coast i mean you just have to go to the website and then to find me on Instagram, which is where I'm most frequently found is at yoga tune up on Instagram. And then we do have a brand page. Our brand is at tune up fitness. And I always say that if you want the giveaways and the free stuff, you should sign up for the brand page, tune up fitness. And if you want to just hear me in my opinions, you should sign up for mine, but you should probably sign up for both to get a good, a good balance.
0: People can also just go to tuneupfitness.com. Is that right? To, of course, to find the schedule.
1: Yes, yes. And and sign up for the newsletter because we do lots of promos to the newsletter that we don't do anywhere else.
0: Thank you so much, Jill. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Mado. I think maybe you can tell from that conversation why Jill has been such an influence on my evolution as a yoga teacher. She's truly a master teacher. And if it's realistic to get to her yoga tune-up training in Los Angeles, I highly recommend it. If you happen to be closer to me, you can get some of the same skills in a training here in Asheville, North Carolina, that I'm putting together with some colleagues. It's called Functional Anatomy for Yoga Teachers. And I'm really excited to collaborate with some brilliant women, Ferris Fakuri and Kat Matlock. Ferris owns Anjali Yoga and is a physical therapist, and Kat is a body worker and trigger point therapist in addition to being a yoga teacher. Both Ferris and Kat are going to be guests on the podcast in the next few weeks, so you'll get to know them a little bit. We're teaching this training as a series because that's the format that we believe will allow you to retain the most information. When you're talking about a subject as heady as anatomy, biomechanics, kinesiology, it's really important to have some time to digest and not try to stuff in all this information at once, because it's kind of like cramming for an exam, you don't retain it as well. And this way, by doing it as a series, you'll be able to take pieces back to your life, back to your classes, and really think on them and learn them in a deeper way. The series is called Functional Anatomy for Yoga Teachers. It'll run five Sundays, beginning March 10th. 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. So it's three and a half hour sessions. There will be short breaks, but not a big lunch break. It's at the Free Body Trigger Point Massage Clinic in West Asheville, and there's lots of parking and really amazing restaurants nearby. If you want to register, go to teachingyoga.net slash anatomy. And of course, I will include links to both trainings in the show notes. I love to hear your feedback about the podcast. Keep those emails and messages coming. I also really appreciate those of you who have left reviews, that means a lot. The best way to connect with me, the easiest way, the way that I'm going to be able to respond the most quickly, is the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. If you're not a member yet, just go to teachingyoga.net slash join for the link. For the next few weeks, we're sticking with the anatomy theme, so for those of you who love learning about the human body, I've got a lot more coming your way. As always, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week.